acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This Day in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI-HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. Talk to you soon. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hi, I'm Holly Fry. This week I am sitting in for Tracy V. Wilson. Today is December 24th, and it is the day that Silent Night was performed for the first time in 1818. Stille Nacht known in English-speaking places as Silent Night, has, of course, become a standard at Christmas celebrations. This song was originally written not as a song, but as a poem by an assistant priest named Joseph Moore in 1816. Moore, who was born in Salzburg, was ordained in 1815, and he moved to Mariepfar in Lungau in the Austrian Alps the following year. The words of Stille Nacht were written by Moore at a time when the occupation of the area by Bavarian troops was ending, which may have contributed to the song's themes of salvation and peace. In 1818, Moore moved to Obendorf by Salzburg, 130 kilometers northwest of where he had been staying on the Austrian border, and he served at the Church of St. Nicholas there. And the Church of St. Nicholas had an organist named Franz Gruber, who worked primarily as a teacher, but he had other side jobs in addition to playing music at St. Nicholas, including as a church caretaker and also as an organist for another church. 
Moore still had this poem that he had written while he was living in the Austrian Alps, and he had an idea that it could be set to music. And he also wanted something that the choir could sing with a couple of solo parts, preferably accompanied by guitar. And so, to accomplish this task, Moore asked Gruber to write music for the poem. He had made this request on Christmas Eve of 1818, and Gruber was very, very fast. He had this whole thing turned around the very same day. And so later, again, that same day, when Gruber showed Moore the simple composition, as he called it, of music that he had come up with to go with the words of Stille Nacht, Moore was really pleased with it. He thought it was lovely, so much so that he decided that it should just be part of the Mass that evening. And beyond the fact that the performance at the Church of St. Nicholas in 1818 was well-received, we really don't know much about it. But that was the first time it was performed at a Christmas Eve Mass. And it continued to be performed after that debut, first in the surrounding area in Austria, and then slowly spreading through a progressively wider geographical footprint. In just a little more than a decade after the poem was first set to song, Stille Nacht was being performed outside of Austria, From there, it traveled with performers not only across Europe, but beyond Europe. It was sung by a family singing group called the Rayner Family Singers in North America on Christmas Day in 1839. But as the song gained popularity, its origin was obscured after a number of years. Eventually, at the end of 1854, Franz Gruber, who had heard that attribution had been lost as this song took flight and spread around the world, actually wrote down the story of its inception in a document which he titled Authentic Account of the Origin of the Christmas Carol, Silent Night, Holy Night. At this point, Stille Nacht has been translated into more than 300 languages and dialects. It is on UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. More than 100 years after Stille Nacht was first performed, Bing Crosby recorded the English-language version Silent Night in 1935. That is reportedly the number three all-time best-selling single. And it all started on Christmas Eve, 1818, with a song written and performed by an assistant priest and a church organist in Bavaria. If you want to learn a slightly longer version of this story, you can get that on Stuff You Missed in History Class, which has a new episode out called Christmas Triple Feature, Stille Nacht, St. Nick, and Scrooge. Today's episode was researched by Tracy Wilson, who deserves thanks. It was uh, handled on the audio end by Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays. Tomorrow, you should uh, hang back out with us because we're going to talk a little bit about some astronomical fun. And if you'd like to subscribe to This Day in History class, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, 
and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that believes no day in history is a slow day. The day was December 24th, 1826. A drunken Christmas party at the United States Military Academy, also known as West Point, turned into a conflict known as the Eggnog Riot. West Point opened in 1802. Up until the War of 1812, the school was pretty lax. Students were admitted throughout the year, and admission standards weren't the highest. Drinking was a big part of the culture. Eggnog was often the drink of choice at holiday celebrations in the U.S., especially from the 18th century on, and that was the case at West Point. But after the War of 1812, Congress was inspired to funnel more money into the academy. In 1817, Colonel Sylvanus Thayer became the superintendent of West Point. Thayer earned the moniker Father of West Point. He was strict about discipline and academics at the school. He banned playing cards, tobacco, and novels, and students could not leave campus, cook in their dorms, or duel. Thayer did not allow cadets to drink, purchase, or store alcohol, except on the 4th of July and on Christmas. That is, until 1825. That July 4th, cadets carried the school's commandant to their barracks. After that, Thayer banned the possession of alcohol. But instead of following Thayer's new rule, some of the cadets snuck in gallons of whiskey, brandy, rum, and wine from nearby taverns for the holiday party. 
Benny Haven's Tavern, where cadets could barter for alcohol, was too expensive for the amount of liquor they needed. So several nights before Christmas, three cadets crossed the Hudson River to visit Martin's Tavern. After drinking at the tavern, they took liquor back to the academy with them, paying off a guard on the way back. One of the cadets who took part in the revelry was Jefferson Davis, future president of the Confederacy. Thayer knew that the cadets might try to smuggle in alcohol since they had done so before. So he sent two officers, Captain Ethan Allen Hitchcock and Lieutenant William A. Thornton, to keep watch on the North Barracks. The officers went to bed around midnight. At that point, things were pretty quiet. But several hours later, Hitchcock woke up to the sound of a party floors above him. When he went upstairs, he found several drunk cadets and told them to go to their rooms. He left to go back to his own room, but he realized there was another party happening in a nearby bedroom. When he attempted to break that one up too, he got into a spat with a cadet who was trying to hide his identity. Hitchcock left, but the cadets were still upset at the exchange. So they turned to violence and called for the cadets to arm themselves and murder Hitchcock. And the riot began. About a third of the cadets, or 90 of them, were involved in the riot. Another party popped up on a lower floor, and as Hitchcock went to break it up, he ran into Jefferson Davis. Davis ended up going back to his room. But Lieutenant Thornton was also up and trying to put an end to the commotion. A cadet threatened him with a sword, and another hit him with a piece of wood. A cadet tried to shoot Hitchcock with his pistol, but missed when another cadet threw off the aim. When Hitchcock called for the commandant of cadets, the cadets mistakenly thought he was summoning the artillerymen, so they got even more rowdy. They broke windows, dishes, and furniture, and generally tore up the barracks. Eventually, the commandant showed up and the conflict came to an end. After the riot, 22 cadets were placed on immediate restriction. 19 cadets and one soldier were court-martialed. In the end, many of the cadets were allowed to stay at West Point, though some left anyway, and some were dismissed. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about the riot, you can listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Eggnog Riot. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you prefer something a little bit more formal, then you can write us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back tomorrow. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that shines a light on the overlooked moments of everyday history. I'm Gabe Lussier, and today we're looking at the origin of a holiday tradition in the U.S. Capitol, the lighting of the National Christmas Tree. The day was December 24th, 1923. President Calvin Coolidge pushed a button to light the first National Christmas Tree of the United States. The ceremony was held at the Ellipse, a small park just south of the White House fence that's often used for public events involving presidents. Coolidge's involvement lent a sense of validity to the event, but the idea for a national tree didn't come from the White House. The initial proposal came from Lucretia Walker Hardy, the acting director of the Community Center Department for D.C. Public Schools. Hardy sent a letter to the White House in late November of 1923, proposing that a lighted Christmas tree be placed on the south lawn of the White House on Christmas Eve. She believed that the lighting of the tree could serve as a winter event of, quote, national character, similar to that of the White House Easter egg roll that takes place each spring. First Lady Grace Coolidge liked the idea but not the location. 
She had already committed to a caroling event on the North Lawn and didn't want to have dueling Christmas ceremonies on the White House grounds. Mrs. Coolidge suggested the tree be placed at the ellipse instead. Hardy pushed back, saying that holding the event on the White House grounds would grant the celebration, quote, a national significance that it would not have otherwise. When the First Lady still wouldn't budge, Hardy backed down and accepted the ellipse. Perhaps as a compromise, the President agreed to participate in the event, thus lending it the national appeal that Hardy had hoped for. Notably, she wasn't alone in her desire to establish a national Christmas tree and to have the President light it, and not everyone's motives were altruistic. The dream was shared by the Society for Electrical Development in New York City. The group was very interested in the prospect of having the President show off the wonders of electricity on a national stage. They hoped it would spur a greater use of electricity throughout the country. It would also be a chance to demonstrate that electric Christmas lights could be made safe for outdoor use. Outdoor lights wouldn't be made widely available to the public until 1927, so the lighting ceremony in 1923 was something of a glimpse into the not-too-distant future of outdoor decorating. Several prominent members of the Society for Electrical Development attended the lighting that year, and at least one continued to serve on the event's organizing committee for years to come. That man, Frederick M. Fiker, later took credit for the whole event. In 1932, he wrote a letter to his daughter Janet, saying, quote, I thought of this idea of having the National Christmas Tree at Washington which would stimulate other people to have outdoor Christmas trees. In order to get this started, we had to get the President of the United States to light the tree. If you get the President of the United States two years in succession to do a thing, he will always do it. In the end, the group raised $5,000, or nearly $75,000 today, to install underground lighting cables for the tree's bulbs and the ceremony went on just as Fiker had planned. At 5 p.m. on that Christmas Eve, President Coolidge walked from the Oval Office to the Ellipse, then pushed a button and lit up a strand of 2,500 red, white, and green Christmas lights. The tree itself was a 48-foot-tall balsam fir, although some reports put the height at 60 feet. It had been donated for the event by Paul D. Moody, the president of Middlebury College in Vermont, which happened to be the president's home state. The tree had been shipped express from Vermont, and the branches on the lower 10 feet had been damaged during the journey. To help even things out, some branches were cut from a nearby evergreen and then tied to the balsam fir. The lighting was followed with performances by the Epiphany Church Choir and the U.S. Marine Band Quartet. More than 5,000 spectators gathered for the ceremony, and it should be noted that nearly all of them were white. At the time, the city's public facilities were racially segregated. As a result, black residents were only permitted on park grounds to see the National Christmas Tree after the white residents had dispersed for the evening, which wasn't until just before midnight. 
This discrimination undermined the unifying spirit of a national Christmas tree, but African-American residents were still able to find meaning in the flawed symbol. Undaunted, they held an outdoor worship service early that Christmas morning, and a choir composed of singing groups from local community centers sang carols. The idea of a national Christmas tree was a hit with the public, so the ceremony was held again the following year, although the tree's title was slightly altered to become the National Community Christmas Tree. Coolidge, whom the press had nicknamed Silent Cow, had refused to speak at the first lighting ceremony, but in 1924, he agreed to give the briefest of statements, saying, quote, I accept this tree, and I will now light it, which he did. Coolidge had almost scrapped the second year's ceremony because he didn't like the idea of cutting down a new tree every year. He changed his mind when it was suggested they could use a living tree instead. The event alternated between living trees and cut trees donated from different states from 1924 until 1973. From that point on, a living Christmas tree planted in the ellipse has been used for the celebration, although the tree has been replaced from time to time due to fungal disease. Beginning in 1924, the lighting ceremony was held in various locations on and around the White House grounds. Finally, the ceremony returned to the ellipse for good in 1954, when the event was greatly expanded to include a whole assortment of Christmas trees. As times changed, the ceremony gradually became the inclusive event that it always should have been, welcoming visitors from all backgrounds without restriction. When Coolidge lit the first outdoor national Christmas tree, he kicked off a holiday tradition that's been followed by each succeeding president since 1923, just as Fiker had hoped. Through periods of unity and division, through good times and bad, the event has served as a yearly reminder to practice peace and goodwill. And, of course, to use lots and lots of electricity while you're at it. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed today's show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wounded. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.